Father, we thank you that in you we have complete assurance and trust and safe haven for our souls. And when we think about the security and assurance that is promised us in Christ Jesus, our Lord, the second person of the Trinity, who through the third person, the Holy Spirit, makes reconciliation between us and God the Father, we are reminded that we worship and serve the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the author and finisher not only of our faith, but of this entire universe. And as we look to your scriptures today, we will see afresh, be reminded in our souls of your power to create all that we see in this glorious world that even now, though under the curse of sin, continues to echo forth evidence and testimony to your power. Lord, as we see this in your scripture and with our very eyes in general revelation, it quickens our soul to remember we have every good reason, innumerably so, to place our faith in one who can set the planets into orbit and hold us upon this spinning orb, who can cause the plants to spring forth with food for the hungry, and cause the seasons to repeat over and over again for thousands of years with regularity, according to the prescription of your decree from the very beginning. We thank you that we serve a God who is in absolute control of the destiny of each and every molecule from the moment they were created to the moment they transform, Lord, producing energy, and the moment they are recreated in the new heaven and new earth one day. We thank you, Lord, for these assurances. We thank you for the hope and the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the sufficient price of his blood that was shed to pay for all these things as a reality for the believing in this room today who place their faith in their Lord Jesus Christ. Open our ears to hear, we pray, and eyes to see your holy word. May we treasure it more this day on account of your spirits using its proclamation in our ears to bring you glory and praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. May we thank him with our hearts, freshly realizing this morning the great privilege of opening up his scriptures and taking note of them this day. Would you turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1? Today we will consider the opening words of the Bible itself, the very first book of the Word of God, the first of the Pentateuch, that is the five books of Moses. The name of the book, Genesis, indicates beginnings. It is, in fact, the foundational words of all of Holy Scripture that we turn our attention to today. So let us do so under this title this morning, Creation, Revelation. Creation, Revelation. What is revealed about God in his holy word, through the events of the very origins of all that we see around us in this material world, and indeed the origins of the very first of humanity, Adam and Eve themselves. The aim of this morning's message is to expand our understanding and appreciation of glories revealed from page one of Holy Scripture. As we consider Genesis chapter one, one through five this morning, It is my prayer that the message would accomplish in our hearts a deeper understanding and an appreciation of the glories of God revealed from page one of Holy Scripture. This morning, with your Bible open to Genesis chapter one, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? As we stand in reverence and in fear, let us consider these foundational, these words of prologue, these words of introduction to all the word of Christ, all the word of God in Genesis 1, 1 through 5. Here we have the holy word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created 
the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The very creation of the entire universe, as with all of the works of God, was and is, as recorded, we see recorded here in Scripture, a revelatory act. That means it is a work that God accomplished in part to reveal aspects of His character, to show forth, to showcase, to display, to show off, if you will, His glories, aspects of Him and His power that we can see as we consider what he has done. Intrinsic to its purpose, the record of the Bible's opening pages informs, instructs, and displays the manifold glories of God. The unique status, consider for a moment our unique status and privilege to even consider this truth this morning. Among all of God's creatures, all of his created world, you and I, and you could say as well, the angels are unique among all created beings. Why? Because God has made us, us, alone in such a way that we have the ability, we have the capacity to behold and appreciate this revelation from Genesis 1 this morning. There are no chimps in some jungle overseas that are sitting around the word of God this morning with an open to Genesis 1, recalling their first chimp ancestors that were made on the sixth day of creation. It sounds laughable to even consider it. Furthermore, in the fields of some farm on yonder hill, there are no cows who gather around a wise old cow who has studied the scriptures to hear from him, again, the majesties of our Lord that are recorded on the day their very first cow pair was herded into the ark or the very first cow pair was created on creation or the cow pair was herded onto the ark two by two all the way back in the book of Genesis. Cows and chimps do not have the ability to appreciate where they came from. You and I do. Of the millions, perhaps billions, I don't even know how many species of different creatures all over this entire world, not one of them, save Homo sapiens this morning, are opening up the scriptures and considering where they came from, with their soul moved to consider how profound a principle, a reality, a truth that is. Consider that, consider that this morning, and consider afresh as you think about this, what a privilege we have to consider, what a great responsibility and what a great reward it is to look upon our origins and to consider their significance. None of the works of God are merely a means to an end. Nothing revealed is mechanistic or utilitarian pragmatics of the metaphysical kind. In other words, as we consider the great works of our God, 
Let us also consider that all of them are pregnant. They're full of meaning, revealing himself to us. God does nothing just to connect the dots or just to accomplish an end. Nothing is mere machinery or mere gears in God's great machine. God is not the distant deistic watchmaker who creates the mechanism and then steps back and watches the gears turn. God is not the initiator of some fatalistic set of cause and effects to which he is a mere spectator after initiating it. Nothing of the kind. Everything God does from the beginning of time to the end of time in all things in between is done in order to reveal, to showcase, to display aspects of his glorious character and his works, worth, and attributes. Therefore, in every place and in every time, the work of God reveals himself in resplendent contours and in definite beauty. May I submit to you this morning, too often we approach the question of how we got here with just the the, uh, consideration of how in mind. How did we get here? How was the world created? How does the world exist? These are the questions of science. They're questions that rightly interest us, but they should not be the only question on our mind as we consider our origins. We should also consider why and who is responsible for our existence. Who, why, and how all come together in the record of Genesis. Who? The Lord God Almighty, Elohim as he's revealed, created the heavens and the earth. How? He did so by the word of his power. God said, let there be light. And why? We find in all of scripture, God did so to display his manifold glories. Restricting our interests to process alone blinds us to the true beauties and the true joys of discovery in both specific and general revelation. That is in the word of God and in the world that he has made. If we restrict our interest and our curiosity to just the process, we blind ourselves to the glorious reality, the joy and the beauty of all that God has done to display himself to us as creatures, again, unique among his creation, to appreciate these very things. From the first words of Genesis, we not only discover the origins of the material universe, but we meet the creator of heaven and earth in profound displays of himself. So it is my prayer that through the proclamation of these words in our hearing this morning, he may grant us eyes to see and ears to hear him through his word and through his world. Let us therefore consider these first five uh, verses of the first book of the Bible under this heading. The first words of the Bible reveal the following. Number one, fundamental distinctions. Number two, essential characteristics of God. And number three, gospel anticipating power and purpose. I submit to you that these implications are within these five verses today. The text, again, is saturated with power and significance. The first words of the Bible itself reveal, first of all, fundamental distinctions. I mentioned to you how much we blind ourselves to if we consider only the process and we don't consider the who and the why. Evidence to this effect comes to us from many, many quotes, many, many books, and many, many scientific studies all through the years. Man is endlessly fascinated 
with where we come from, but man has not opened his heart in most cases to the reality of our supernatural origins. And this is true today as it has been true ever since the fall of mankind. Since the fall of Adam, also recorded in the book of Genesis, man has been motivated to deny the existence of where he came from, to deny his own origin story, to deny the existence of God himself. He does so through ostensible means at his disposal, even science itself. Listen to George Wald. He was the professor of biology at Harvard in the 50s. Listen to this quote. One has only to contemplate the magnitude of this task to concede that the spontaneous generation of a living organism is impossible. Do you see what he's saying? In order for the conditions to come together to make something out of nothing, to happen by itself, he freely admits, is absolutely impossible. Notice his next sentence. Yet here we are, as a result, I believe, of spontaneous generation. Why is this man willing, as professor of a prodigious school like Harvard, in a department dedicated to the study of the generation of biological organisms, this professor willing to admit the absurd? Why? Because he is unwilling to admit the supernatural. He goes on, when speaking of myself, I do not intend to make sentences containing the word of God. But what do those persons mean who make such sentences? What I have learned is that many educated persons now tend to equate their idea with God with their concept of the order of nature. In other words, exactly as Romans 1 has said, man has rejected the clear revelation of God, suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, and exchanged the glory of God for that which is created." And in this phrase, he admits as much that people equate their idea of God with their concept of the order of nature. That is to say, biologists who follow in the footsteps of this man worship the order of things. They ascribe to the thing itself its own generation, its own origin. We are here because we are here, because we are here. There is no cause beyond what we see in the universe itself, he, he freely admits, is his belief. Does he make this on objective, empirical, scientific grounds? No, he does so in faith, but in faith of the absurd, the absurd sin nature of man that drives him to deny that God is the cause, the supernatural origin uh, cause behind all things in the material universe. He goes on to say the only alternative to some form of spontaneous generation, that is things coming into being, creating themselves, is a belief in supernatural creation. So there you have it, from the voice of a professor of biology, a testimony in his unbelief, to an either-or scenario. Either things absurdly came into existence of their own generation, or you must believe in the supernatural, in creation. Which will you believe this morning? Will you, will you join the popular kids in the world of unbelief who freely admit, in this case, their absurdity rather than admit that they stand before a holy God who is responsible for their generation in the first place? Or will you submit to God's holy word? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
In these first words of the Bible, we find a stark contrast to the quote I just read to you. We find, in fact, distinctions. The first distinction I note this morning is the difference between creator and creation. In the beginning, God, who is distinct, that is to say, from what he created, and namely the heavens. What did he create? Namely, the heavens and the earth. The distinction between the cause and the effect, between the power and what he accomplished, God and his creation. The first distinction in scripture, in the beginning, at the origin of our existence, at the very first cause of where we came from, God, the eternal self-existent I am, as the scriptures go on to to say, the uncontingent, self-contained, needing no other immovable uh, mover, if you will, in philosophical terms, the God of all creation created the heavens and the earth. All that is dependent on his existence, he was responsible for in the beginning. Notice a quote far more profound than the one I just read to you, at least to the positive. This is the commentator Barnes. He writes of Genesis 1, of the sentence that we just read. This simple sentence denies atheism, for it assumes the being of God. It denies polytheism, and among its various forms, the doctrine of two eternal principles, the one good and the other evil. That would be the Eastern idea of the yin and the yang. For it confesses the one eternal creator. It denies materialism, for it asserts the creation of matter. It denies pantheism, for it assumes the existence of God before all things and apart from them. It denies fatalism, for it includes the freedom of the eternal being. This is God introduced to us in the very first sentence of Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, God is introduced as distinct from his creation and any other alternative idea of where we came from, that his created beings, namely man, could come up with. We know that God is not a po- or that God is not polytheistic. That is to say, God is one. There is not many. We know that because in the beginning, God, singular, created the heavens and the earth. We know that God is over and above nature. Therefore, there is no such thing as pantheism. In reality, that is, God is not one with his creation. He's distinct from it. Because we see that he is the eternal self-existent one who is responsible for what he has created. We know that there is a God, therefore the atheist is proven a fool by Genesis 1. We know that his involvement in this task is extremely detailed and absolutely specific and therefore not some fatalistic, mechanistic, distant cause and so on and so forth. This all from the very first sentence of the word of God the Christian worldview, the biblical truth of who is God and who is his creation is established from its very first sentence. Again, say it with me, would you? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Amen. Fundamental distinctions. God here is revealed to us by the term in the original language, Elohim. This is an interesting uh, phrase And it's repeated hundreds of times, as I recall in the Old Testament, if not more. It's it's interesting because it incorporates much in the word itself. The noun is plural in its form, 
as a noun, but singular in its corresponding verb application. What does this mean? Well, in the original language, it's a way of saying that all the powers of creation, all the powers that hold the universe together, all that is necessary to account for reality is summed up in the one true God, Elohim. The power to speak matter into being from nothing is contained in Elohim. The power to maintain the gravitational pulls, to calibrate the uh, rotation and all of the orbits of the planets around the sun, the power to sustain life by creating body systems that can, trans, uh, that can translate food into nutrition and calories to sustain our being, the power to establish, to design, to uh, engineer ecosystems that can maintain themselves over generations, indeed thousands of years, the power to do all of this is in the one God, Elohim. The power, may I go on to say, in all of Scripture, as the Word of God continues to reveal to save man from his sin, is contained in the one God, Elohim. We learn later that he is tripartite in person, yet he is one in essence. This is the Trinity, one God in three persons. Elohim is his name in Genesis 1. All of these powers to establish, to create, to maintain, to redeem, to decree, to accomplish, to order, to prescribe, and to fulfill his every will and intention. All of these are subsumed in the name Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim created. What did he create? The heavens and the earth. In the scriptures, the heavens and the earth is a term that's repeatedly used with reference to the entire cosmos, all of creation, the entire universe. That is to say, the one God with all the power created everything material, the entire universe. These are totalizing statements. These are absolute truth claims. There is nothing outside what Genesis 1 has stated. There is no room for another God. There is no room for a competing theory. There is no room for other universes. Man in his foolishness has proffered the idea that perhaps we are one among innumerable universes. This is called the multiverse theory. Why does man pursue theoretical physics like this? Cosmogony, that is, origin of reality stories like multiple universes. Well, it's because man will not allow in his sin for the idea of the one true self-existent God, I am Yahweh, covenant keeper, eternal, before all life began. And so, perhaps the answer to our existence is that there's millions, billions, trillions, an infinite number of universes. And with each universe... There, that probability that one would sustain life increases. And these are the absurdities that we go to to try to explain our existence void or devoid of Genesis 1.1. Let us reject, repent, renounce all this foolishness as his church. Let us not retain any compromise that the world might offer in competition with God's holy word. But let us hold to the original story that was true as much uh, that was tr as true the day it was written as it is today and creation continues to testify in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Fundamental distinction between the creator, the sovereign and creation, everything that is dependent on him. 
Under this, we have the fundamental distinction of the eternal and the temporal. God is eternal. He's the only thing that preexisted the earth, if you will. He was forever himself, always existing before the world began. He is the eternal source from which all life began. Thus, in Scripture, we have in the worldview of the Bible two forms of existence presupposed from Genesis 1. There there is that which exists eternally and that which exists temporally. That which exists eternally is solely God alone. That which exists temporally or within the bounds of time is all of His creation. This is men, this is angels, uh, created heavenly beings. This is all of the earth that we see as we explore its outer reaches. This is space as we stare into the void uh, with the Hubble telescope and so forth. As far as we can study, as far as we can look in this material world, this is all the temporal, this is all the temporal evidence of God's eternal creative power manifest before us. God who is from all eternity, the I am that I am, is responsible for everything that is contingent or derivative of his creative power. What does contingent mean? It means it is dependent on something else for its existence, for its origin. You and I are absolutely dependent on many things. We're dependent on our next breath in order to maintain our life. We're dependent on our next meal or at least, you know, sometime within a reasonable amount of time, getting more calories to continue. We're contingent upon our life, our our beating heart is contingent upon these sources of nutrition, of life, breath, food, water, and so on. Our life is contingent on a relative amount of safety and protection. But even more fundamental than all these temporal things that we need in order to continue to live, we are contingent upon our Creator. Without God creating man in the first place, you and I would not exist We are temporal. As much as we would like to think of ourselves as more highly than we ought, the fact remains that there are a million things that could change in an instant and would kill us, snuff out our life in a moment. We're contingent upon God as our creator. We're contingent upon him for maintaining us as well, preserving the conditions of life necessary for our existence. We are derivative. We owe our existence to the sovereign one, to the eternal one, and so does the rest of creation. And this is what is announced and proclaimed and assumed and decreed from the very beginning of God's word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Thirdly, fundamental distinction assumed in Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, we have the distinction not only between creator and creation, the eternal and the temporal, but also death and life. Notice verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So in this early form of matter, it was dead as it were. It did not as of yet contain life. We see this as we read further in the example of Adam himself. What What were the Adam's if you will, that made up Adam, that's a lot of Adams, Um, before God breathed life into him. He was clay. He was the dust of the earth. He was formless, unorganized, and void, if you will. He was in this category of formless, void, darkness, and the deep. 
Adam was nothing but stuff and matter before God himself breathed life into him and he became a living being. There is a distinction assumed in Genesis 1 between death and life. Now again, the scientists these days often get it all wrong. For them, life is nothing more than a sequence of chemicals, a chemical chain reactions, or that which is the cause and effect of merely matter. This is not the true, this is not in fact what God proclaims from the earliest pages of scripture. Without the God-breathed life force of his Holy Spirit hovering over, breathing life into man and organizing creation, it remains nothing but formless and void, darkness and the deeps uh, and the depths. When we consider these four words, we see in their connotations and associations what life without the life get, or what the world without the life-giving force of the Holy Spirit is like. Formless, it has no shape, has no order, has no teleology, no design, no purpose. It is void. That is to say, it is empty. It doesn't have power. It cannot reproduce. It will not have a next generation. It cannot interact in a mutually beneficial way with the world and the environment around it. Without the life-giving force of the Holy Spirit it is darkness. It, there's no illumination. There's nothing that thrives with vitality. There's nothing that produces energy. It is darkness. More than this, it is the deep. What is the deep? It's the abyss. It's the unorganized state of things devoid of the Spirit of God. Formless, void, darkness, abyss, the depths of this uh, chaotic, if you will, mass of mere matter. There is a distinction between death and life that is articulated from the earliest pages of God's word. Remember this later in the story when we find that, at the, that a God commands that the day that man eats of the fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on that day he will surely die. That is to say, there is an aspect of man's being under the curse of sin that will become again formless, void, dark and abyss-like, if you will. And this, in fact, marks our future devoid of regeneration, new life, new creation. What is hell but the abyss, darkness, void, formlessness, if you will? It's death. It is the reality of existence apart from the life-infusing, maintaining, sustaining grace and spirit of God Almighty. There's a distinction between death and life. The words used for formless and void in the original language are bohu and tohu or something uh, to that effect. And we find them repeated in Isaiah 34, 11. And you can study that passage on your own time. And you can find them associated in that text with confusion and emptiness. That is to say, without the Lord God in his direct maintenance and, uh, and creation and creative power itself, the earth would remain confused and empty. This language in Jeremiah 4.23 and Isaiah 34.11, they both call back to the language that illustrates the desolation of the world devoid of the Spirit of God. And th these terms are a stark contrast to the animating force of God-breathed life. There is no other source of life in all of the created world than the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, that is, over the abyss, 
over the formless and uh, dark and void matter. And as he did so, something changed. And we see the evidence of this effect of the Spirit of God upon matter itself in the rest of the first chapter. We also see here a foreshadowing of resurrection life. Today is the first day of the week. It is Sunday. And on this day, we celebrate the resurrecting power of our Lord. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. And the Spirit of God raised our Lord from the dead, hovered over, if you will, His lifeless form, breathed life into it again. And in this way, we see even a foreshadowing of resurrection power of Christ our Lord from the grave on the first day of creation week. The first day of creation week to the first day of, if you will, redemption week, God's spirit was there supplying the life that breathes animating force into that which otherwise would remain formless, void, dark, deep, and dead. The first words of the Bible reveal fundamental distinctions. Creation versus creator, eternal versus temporal, death versus life. Secondly, the first words of the Bible reveal essential characteristics of God himself. May I suggest three of them this morning. God is preeminent. That means he is over and above. He is primary. He is first. He is foremost. He is sovereign. He is powerful. He is responsible. God is preeminent. Secondly, he is personal. He is connected in a personal way through relationship to his creation, and especially to those upon whom he has set his seal in his covenant upon, that is man, especially as he is redeemed in Christ. And thirdly, he is wise, preeminent, personal, and wise. We see in the first five verses of Genesis 1, these essential characteristics of God. God is revealed as preeminent, first of all. Again, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So in the beginning, we had God, God who preexisted the world, God who was responsible for its generation, God, therefore, who is preeminent. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. Let me uh, read something more from Barnes again, who writes of these words in Genesis 1. Genesis 1.1 assumes the existence of God, for it is He who in the beginning creates. It assumes His eternity, for He is before all things. And since nothing comes from nothing, He Himself must always have been. It implies His omnipotence, for here He creates the universe of things, it, uh, the universe of things, that is, all things. It implies his absolute freedom, for he begins a new course of action. It implies his infinite wisdom, for an order of matter and uh, for an order of matter and mind can only come from a being of absolute intelligence. And finally, it implies his essential goodness. For the sole, eternal, almighty, all-wise, and all-sufficient being has no reason, no motive, and no capacity for evil. All of this, may I submit, and more, as Alfred Barnes recognizes, 
is written into, is saturated, is implied, is built into the revelation of God in these first few verses of his record of the origin of all things. When the scriptures say, God said, let there be light and there was light, the scriptures assume a preeminent God who was before all things and of whom all things exist. As the scriptures go on to say, of him, through him, and to him are all things, even light itself. God indeed is preeminent. The scriptures assume the existence of God from the very first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is a mistake that we often make, sometimes in apologetics, the defense of our faith, sometimes in trying to discover where we came from by standing on reason alone. A man often assumes mistakenly that he can account for all things by logic, by sound thinking. But in doing so, he admits something that is contrary to Genesis 1. He admits that he has the sole power to to, uh, discover truth in and of himself. If we could justify our existence, if we could understand our origins by means of reason alone, then we have elevated ourselves to a place of God. There are some presuppositions, there are some things that must be admitted to account for the reality of our existence that are a higher authority than our mere mind. And this is the fact that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The highest authority, the first assumption, the fundamental presupposition, the very starting point of truth as to admit, to submit that God exists, that God is, and because he is, so we exist. This is not to say that God has not given evidence of himself all through creation. In fact, there's so much evidence that we are absolutely without excuse. But it is to say that by reason alone, We cannot justify the existence of God. Why? Because where did reason come from in the first place? It came from God. The only reason that we have sound thinking ability is because God exists in the first place. Reason is not God. In spite of what what scientism assumes, God is God. If you want to account for the origin of the universe, you must account for it by divine revelation. Why? Because we weren't there to see it. We can't replicate it. We can't empirically verify or study all of the conditions necessary for the origin of the universe. We must receive the truth from the one who is there. We have eyewitness testimony from the mouth of the creator of this world who tells us in his holy scripture, in the beginning, I, as it were, or if you will, created the heavens and the earth. God is preeminent. And he will not suffer competition for his place of preeminence from reason or from any other idol. Second essential characteristic of God that is revealed from the very first words of Scripture is perhaps that he is personal. God is preeminent and he is personal. There are two words in theology that describe the scope of God's interaction with his uh, people, with his creation. Uh, people as well as the rest of the world. That is to say, he is eminent, meaning he is over and above and responsible for all. And secondly, he is imminent. He is personal and he interacts 
in a very specific way with his creation. He is over and above, that is, he transcends, he directs, he decrees, he's responsible, yet he is also intimately, closely, imminently, if you will, involved with his creation. We see this in the first pages of Genesis. God said, let there be light. God's speech was responsible for the creation of light itself. More than this, God's speech was responsible in verse 6 for the expanse in the midst of the waters. God spoke specifically on the third day uh, as well and intimately and imminently was involved in the creation of the earth, sprouting forth vegetation, plants, yielding seed. And so it goes through the course of the six days of creation. Why did God take six days? Why did he do so specifically speaking to each aspect as it's laid out in scripture? Why did he do so with the presence of his Holy Spirit hovering over the face of the waters? It is because he is a personal God, not some distant impersonal cause, not some algorithm, not some formula, not some mere uh, scientific or mathematical explanation of where we came from, but no. He is intimately, personally, imminently involved in each aspect of what he does. We are here because God spoke us into existence. We are here because in even more specific manner, God fashioned and formed with his own hands, if you will, man from the dust of the earth. We are here because God himself breathed his life-giving spirit into the first Adam and he became a life-infused being. That is why we're here. Why does the world continue as it does to bloom and to plant rainfalls today that will nourish the soil and supply plants need for their growth? The Lord sends the rain. His word is clear on the just and even the unjust. Why is this the case? Because God is personally involved with his creation, not only in its generation, but in its maintenance, in its creation and in its sustenance all the while. God is preeminent and he is personal. More than this, God is wise. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 8. In Genesis 1 verse 4, God saw the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. This first day, the separation, the differentiation, the categories that God lays out is planning. It's an engineer who is establishing patterns and framework for the future. God in his perfect wisdom is establishing in his created order over these six days categories that will be reference points for man. Days by which he will work. A day by which he will worship the Lord. A pattern of light and dark. Uh, days and nights whereby he will mark time and he will have reference points for God's faithfulness in the changing seasons, in the rising of the sun, in the setting of the same. God is separating the light from the darkness. He is defining the hours in a day. He is determining the course of evening, uh, sunsets and sunrise in the morning, seasons that change at his command for a particular purpose because he is wise. The book of Proverbs illustrates the wisdom of God in poetic ways, personifying wisdom. And we find uh, later wisdom itself um, in Christ 
Christ is wisdom personified, if you will. The wisdom of God was evident in the beginning, in creation, in the way that God ordained all things with particular end in mind, planning and uh, commissioning aspects of creation that he would then build upon in his revelation on all throughout all the scriptures. Proverbs 8, 24, ages ago, wisdom speaking, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, when I was, then I was beside him like a master workman and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Wisdom was there from the very beginning. And this was not arbitrary, the way God designed the world. And the reason he ordered things as he does so is revealed to us through the rest of Scripture. Consider the surface of water. The surface of water lends itself as a stage for the revelation of the Messiah as he walks across the abyss, as it were, to demonstrate to his disciples that he is the Lord, he is Yahweh, who spoke over the seas and organized them in the first place. Let me submit to you that from the beginning of creation, the reason why God retained large bodies of water, seas, was in part to demonstrate the Messiah was here when Jesus Christ would walk across the surface of the abyss and announce himself to his disciples as Yahweh, creator, sustainer, organizer, intender of all of the order of creation. The way God, the reason that God established unbreakable by man's means, laws of nature, whereby the order and the progress can be measured is so that we could see by differentiation his miraculous supernatural hand when the dead rise, showing his resurrection power at the Lord's command as Lazarus rises from the tomb and as our Lord breaks forth from the earth with new life in his resurrection after three days of death. Life and death, the differentiation, the means whereby God establishes the order, the laws of nature itself, which are fixed points of reference, the very design of all these things is to showcase through the course of his redemptive history, the glories of the Messiah and the wisdom of his purpose, purposes and the manifest glory of all that he has done from beginning to end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Last point this morning. The first words of the Bible reveal not just fundamental distinctions, not just essential characteristics of God, but as we've touched upon briefly already, gospel anticipating power and purpose. Gospel anticipating power and purpose. These words foreshadow the gospel. Listen again, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. These words are pregnant with meaning. A spirit is sometimes translated breath or wind. 
That is to say, it's the aspect of God. It is the third person of the Trinity. It is that which is associated with the activity, with the movement, with the accomplishment, with the means and the operational element of God's interaction in this world. And in this way, his spirit was hovering. If you imagine like a 60 cycle hum of a giant machine and you have this ominous sense of incredible power producing something as a power plant overwhelms you with its noise and its electricity and the gears of its machinery. Or you can imagine a bird hovering over caring for, as an eagle would, her chicks and the mother hen as it were spreads her wings over the eggs and provides that comfort, that care, that concern, and that protection, and that constant attention. So at the very moment the shell breaks and the chick is there, it's ready to be comforted, to be fed, to be nourished, and to be taught how to fly. It's the idea of this hovering. It's a sense of suspense that there's power there. Something's happening. There's incubation. There's a source of life that is accomplishing a mighty act of animating force. Now, this power is replicated. It's seen in the course of redemptive history throughout the scriptures. In Exodus 14, 21, there was a wind empowered by the Spirit of God, which all night exerted its force upon the Red Sea and drove back the sea, as Exodus 14, 21 describes, by an east wind. Again, a picture of the Spirit in his wind and power, hovering over a body of water, and in this case, making safe passage for his people. And this prefigured the activity of the Holy Spirit and the heart of believers to deliver them from their sin. And it was repictured again in Acts chapter 2, where again, the Holy Spirit reveals himself in Acts 2, 1 through 4, as a mighty rushing wind And he manifests himself in this way. And in tongues of fire, he appears, as it were, upon the heads of the disciples. And they speak with other tongues, signaling that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of his redeemed, accomplishing a mighty work in the heart of those who now were transformed by the mighty indwelling Spirit of God unto witnessing to the power of regeneration as that first wave of spirit-empowered apostles, missionaries, disciples, go forth to proclaim the word of God. And so the spirit of God hovers across the face of the deep in your own heart and life, believer, and has done so. And he has exerted his resurrection power over the abyss, the formlessness, and the void darkness of your soul. And he has transformed your spirit, and he is giving you new life. Regeneration speaks again, new creation. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Just as the spirit of God hovered upon the face of the waters of old, so he has done so upon your heart and has regenerated you by the exclusive power of his sovereign active work, gospel anticipating power and purpose. Secondly, his word. And God said, let there be light and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. The, sixth, uh, or, uh, the oft-repeated refrain of God said, preceding each one of his creative wonders, establishes a pattern anticipating the gospel. That is to say, the word of God has intrinsic power to call from death new life. And so God has ordained the proclamation of his holy word 
to spontaneously, if you will, generate by his sovereign hand faith in the heart of the hearer. And so we see this in Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Why are we such a word-based faith? Why is Christianity constantly extolling, proclaiming, returning to as our great refuge and as our assurance, source of confidence, the word of God? It's because this truth is proclaimed to us all the way back in Genesis 1. We see that his word was responsible for the entire universe in the first place. God said, let there be light. And so God said, let there be light in our souls. And the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ became a reality in us. And these pictures anticipate the gospel, his spirit, his word. In fact, all of these are an incarnation prelude. John tells us as much. In closing, let us turn again to John 1. John chapter 1, this language of creation is picked up and it's identified with the person and work of Christ. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, capital W. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Uh, children in the room, do you recognize any similarities between this and the beginning of Genesis? What are we reminded of in John 1 and Genesis 1? Does anyone have any ideas? Israel, do you remember what you said? Yes. Say again. Light. light. That's right, Israel... Uh, notice that in Genesis 1 and John chapter 1, there is light uh, associated with God's work. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This is associated with the entrance, the incarnation of Jesus into the world. But this language reminds us of Genesis 1. God spoke and what was the first effect of his word? Light. God said, let there be light and there was light. Now, the word of John continues. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Verse 6, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Verse 9, <clears throat> The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world, world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. And so it continues, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So word and light are themes that hearken all the way back to Genesis as a preamble for the incarnation. Just as God spoke and light uh, dawned uh, on the horizon of the abyss at the very first moments of creation. So God, the word made flesh, came and, uh, and dwelt among us and as such was the dawn of true light upon us, his people. I love the picture in Luke as well. I can't resist uh, turning there. As Zechariah and the revelation of Christ as the light has dawned on him. And he filled with the Holy Spirit, again, the same spirit that hovered over the abyss at the beginning of creation. The same spirit 
who hovered over Mary as it were, and therefore she was conceived, Jesus Christ, of the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that hovers over the deadness and abyss of your own soul and calls new life, this Holy Spirit animated Zechariah, and he filled with the Holy Spirit said, because in verse 78, of the tender mercies of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah prophesies of Jesus Christ as the sun and speaks of him in the moment of his incarnation as the sunrise that has visited us from on high. The Holy Spirit inspired him to burst forth in worship, declaring that light uh, has come to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The incarnation is prefigured in Genesis chapter 1, gospel anticipating power and purpose. Just as the Spirit hovered over the face of the formless waters, sparking life, regeneration, beginning with light, so one day God would send His only Son as light into this world, And by the proclamation of his word, the Holy Spirit would hover over our souls, sparking, regenerating us, new life, breathing into us, resurrection power, causing us to be born again in Christ. This is the amazing truth of our regeneration that recalls Genesis 1 itself. This, brothers and sisters, is creation revelation. From the very first words of the Bible, we find all of these aspects uh, and more. Fundamental distinctions, essential characteristics of God, and gospel anticipating power and purpose. Let us worship our Lord. Let us have a deeper understanding in light of this. Let us appreciate His glories revealed from the very first pages of Holy Scripture. Let us close in prayer. O Lord, we thank You for the power of Your gospel. Lord Jesus, that is sown like a beautiful thread all through history. And we see its contours more clearly when your spirit opens our eyes to see the glories in your scripture. Write these truths upon the table of our heart, I pray. May they move us to worship. Father, I pray for those among us who may not know you yet, that the Holy Spirit would hover upon them, that you would resurrect them from the abyss of their sin. Lord, I pray as we go forward in studying your holy scriptures through the course of Genesis, that you would illumine to our heart, soul, and understanding the powers of your glory, the power of your glorious word. Lord, may we see how preeminently glorious you are in your scriptures. And may we have further confidence, renewed faith, and a greater ability to proclaim the testimony of our confession, the glories of our God as a result of our study in this book. Guide us and direct us, we pray, even this week, Lord, to bring honor to your name as we consider your scriptures and as we seek to walk in light of them by your Spirit's enabling. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.